Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Josh Frulinger. He's a writer at ThinkNum. This is Technotopia. This episode of Technotopia is sponsored by CheapTranscription.io. CheapTranscription offers 10 cent per minute transcriptions using our happy robots or 85 cents per minute using our human assistants. CheapTranscription.io is cheaper and faster than everyone else. CheapTranscription.io. This episode of Technotopia is brought to you by Typewriter.plus. Typewriter.plus is a full service editorial agency that brings amazing editors from places like the New York Times and TechCrunch to work on your writing. Need a blog post, a white paper, a presentation? typewriter team can write or edit anything on nearly any topic visit them at typewriter.plus for a free quote that's typewriter.plus typewriter.plus welcome back to technotopia the podcast about a better future i'm john biggs today on the show we have joshua Frilliger. he's editor-in-chief of think numb media uh and a longtime journalist uh welcome josh this has been a, a long time coming yeah I've, you know we've never done this before i no. feel like you know we should do this more often let's do it tomorrow Every day, we can do this sure. every day. Actually, I think okay. I think in, in 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 lieu of therapy, I think we should just do this. <laughs> this feels better than therapy. <laughs> so so we were just we were literally just talking about uh, journalism, blogging, all the things that uh, that essentially destroyed us as young men. Uh, what's the uh, what's what's your take on things now? What are you doing over at ThinkDom? Well, strangely enough, circuitously enough, I'm kind of back to where I started. I'm blogging again. You know, I, I spend my day doing anywhere from two to 10, three to 500 word stories for this uh, startup called ThinkNum. I launched a media arm called ThinkNum Media, uh, who is in what's called the alternative data space. Um, and we do stories based on data that we find, you know, alternative data. So that means everything from, it's you know, it's external data. So it's all the stuff that we pull off of the off the web, off of public APIs and that kind of stuff. So we're looking at everything from how many people Apple is hiring over time. We're looking at um, uh, you know pricing trends at Amazon, sales rank trends at GameStop and all that kind of stuff, location data, where stores are opening and closing locations, where you know crazy chains like Oyo are opening new uh, you know hotels in China and India and that kind of stuff. And what happens is you know as we grab these snapshots of this data on a on a on a daily basis, they create time series, and we see movement. So we see trends up and down in hiring or locations and that kind of stuff, and we can measure the proximity. And as someone who has been chasing information and chasing the truth for half of his life as a as a journalist and writer, um, I, you know, I get to sit on top of this massive database and report on actual stuff that people can go and verify. And when I f- stumble upon stuff, which has happened a few times, I, I feel like it happens every day now. I, I have that old exhilarating feeling again. So, you know, I know I'm drinking the Kool-Aid because I'm at a startup, but it sort of feels like that again. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you're actually doing, you're doing a, a journalistic arm of a, I guess, a for-profit enterprise. I mean, it's a, basically you guys, you guys are doing analytics. Um, how does, what's, what's going to happen in the future in terms of journalism? Uh, is, is Sony going to do its own blog, uh, where it talks about only Sony products? Is that, is that the situation? Are we going back to like the, the days of, uh, I don't know, uh, soap operas brought to you by, uh, Dove Soap, that kind of thing? Well, I, I'm pretty sure Sony's already doing that. I know all these yeah, companies yeah. do that. They've all, they've all got blogs and they hire out agencies and they do, you know, marketing, um, content and content strategy and content marketing. Um, 
you know, our, our business model is, I wouldn't even call it unique because honestly, Bloomberg did the exact same thing that we're doing. They just did it 40 years ago when they, when they had those initial data terminals. And Bloomberg was sitting on top of all this financial data. And he's like, holy crap, this is potentially really interesting to the business crowd. And, and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times don't have access to this data. So we're going to launch a media arm that's going to get people excited about the data. And hopefully they'll sign up for these Bloomberg terminals which was their sort of their sort of main money uh, maker. And we're structured in the same kind of way. Um, so if you see something, one of our stories, and it looks really interesting, you're like, holy crap, I want access to that data. You can you know, sign up for a demo, just like you would a Bloomberg terminal. And you know, if you sign up, my company makes money. So my role here is to, you know, uh, my role personally is to you know, write amazing stories, I think. But if it excites someone and they have the budget to do so, they can sign up for a demo and maybe become a client of the company. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's similar to what, uh, to what they were doing there. The, the thing that I love about it though, is I don't have to deal with advertisers and it's the first time in my life that I don't have clients or advertisers who are coming to me on a daily basis and sort of saying, you know, it'd be really nice if you said something good about, mm -hmm. you know, X, Y, and Z. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating point. I mean, you like the, to be able to not worry about advertisers, and that's actually where I kind of I kind of am at CoinDesk right now. There's not a lot of advertisers on the site, uh, and that's that's because it got kind of uh, got kind of dicey during the ICO days. Um, how do how do we make money as journalists if we don't have advertisers outside of outside of being like I don't know a, uh, a house organ for for something else? Yeah, and that's something that we've all been struggling to figure out. You know, the, the original model, obviously, was subscriptions. You know, you have the town crier at the corner saying extra, extra. You sell a paper for a dollar. You bring, you know, the $20 back. You get a cut of it. And, you know, that's how you sort of make money off of subscriptions. And then they started advertising to all the local people who want to get their stuff in front of it. And that's sort of where we're stuck between those two models now. You know, people all day long are still talking about those two models, which is either or both advertising or subscriptions. People are doing you know, there's there's a lot of uh, models in between where they put some stuff behind, you know, paywalls. I know Business Insider started doing that recently. Um, some of your colleagues started publications that are 100% behind paywalls. Seems to be working for them. I don't know what the numbers are, but honestly don't know, you know, how sustainable either one is. You know, a lot of people have experimented with hyper-local advertising, like, you know, Tim Armstrong and AOL infamously tried to do with Patch, and it feels like that's an experiment that people try and fail out multiple times. Um, you know, and I'm in this weird space now where I'm experimenting with a model that I think has been, you know, it's obviously been tried before, as I mentioned with Bloomberg, but it's interesting for us because um, while I start the day off thinking I can write about anything, there is still that sort of bird in the back of my mind or the bee buzzing around my bonnet that sort of says, well, I should write about something that at least is going to create some interest in the product. Um, so, you know, and I fully admit that. Um, you know, I, you know, it, as far as the future goes, I'm not sure. You know, I think I think we're going to have a period where people begin experimenting again with uh, different forms of blogging and microblogging. I think there's a lot to be learned from what's going on in social media. You know, on Instagram and the whole influencer market, which. I feel like people have stopped talking about strangely, but it's still a very healthy market, um, you know, where people just get paid to be who they are, which I think is kind of a future that I think people don't talk about because it makes them uncomfortable. I mean, ultimately, are, are they being paid to, to be who they are? Are they being paid to be a persona of 
uh, I don't know, happy-go-lucky fan of anime or, I don't know, cat person or sexy lady in bikini kind of situation. I mean, everybody's, everybody's adopting a persona. I mean, I, you could also argue that any journalist is adopting a persona as well. Is, is it, are the economics there different than anything that's happening in the Hollywood uh, studio system, except that the Hollywood studio system had another had 70 years to build itself out, right? Your, your example of, of Hollywood is spot on. Um, and that was the first thing that I was thinking of, because that's, um, that's kind of the world that I come from. I grew up in Southern California, and I was surrounded by, by Hollywood. And I still have friends who are in the industry, some of them you know, relatively well-known. And I've been around them you know, amongst their families and their people when they're sort of what they say. And it's really strange, sometimes disturbing, where they'll be like, I'm off-brand right now. Like, no social media don't take pictures of me, don't post this and that kind of thing. And then they'll, they'll let you know at certain points, like they're going to take a picture or a selfie at dinner or something like that. And they'll be like, this is for the brand. And this is, this is something that they're thinking about all day long as they go through life. So I think you're absolutely right. This is something that they figured out a long time ago in Hollywood. I think the difference that we're seeing now with, with influencers and social media personalities and the happy-go-lucky anime fan who goes to Comic-Con and takes all the selfies and generates business for other people is that I think the maybe it's an illusion but I I think I believe it I think a lot of them are real you know and I think that that's what I and I think that's at least the dream obviously they're not all real I mean I'm sure we've found that a lot of these influencers is a bunch of crap but I think I think that there are some (laughs) where that's actually them and that's what they do and the interesting thing about that is that that's caused problems for some of them because what ends up happening is they realize that their entire life is on display and when you get paid to be yourself and you stop being yourself because people change because people change over time and we've seen this time and time again we're seeing a lot more of it lately where people would be like you know what i'm out i don't care how much money this is making me this is messing up my life because i'm being paid to be who i was when you all liked me two years ago Mm -hmm. what's the um yeah i mean that's the that's the question how do you how do we how do we create an entirely new media uh that uses all of these tools that uses i mean when when we were coming up we were bloggers we became we we destroyed modern media as we know it by by being faster and worse than almost every other magazine out there uh and that's exactly what people wanted they didn't really care it's like the uncanny valley the 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 fancier it gets the more people believe you and the unfancy it gets the more people believe you but if you land in the middle there somewhere you get like it's weird um it's yeah it's it's a cyclical thing you're absolutely right it's you know it reminds me of what happened with punk rock in the 90s when you know punk rock started as this reaction to everything and people are like yeah this is awesome because you know the ramones are doing stuff on stage and in music and in the studio that no one else has ever done before and they're breaking the mold and then 20 years later you had you know green day and all these other acts who sort of you know commercialized it and and the second that you commercialize rebellion it breaks the mold it breaks the illusion and i think the same thing has happened with you know with with journalism you know as you mentioned you know 18 years ago when we all started blogging you know we were the rebels we were doing stuff we were breaking the rules we weren't allowed at ces we snuck into ces because we weren't considered real journalists and then what happened what happened is we were doing it more authentically we were breaking the rules we were allowing ourselves to say bad things about microsoft and apple whereas no one else was because those were their advertisers and people turned to us and ironically 
all those same publications that you and I used to work for are now the mainstream media within. Yeah, everything flipped. Um, so, you know, if, if you're asking about like what the next inflection point is, I mean, you'll have these, you know, micro revolutions again. People will find different places in media or different, you know, micro blogging places and they'll do exactly what you and I are doing now, which is we'll step aside, hand the keys to other people and try different models and see if it works. Like you mentioned, you're going through, you know, experimenting with stuff you're doing. I'm doing the same with what I'm doing at ThinkDown. Uh, what happens? Uh, what happens with the uh, the fake news stuff? Uh, I guess uh, California, for example, just outlawed uh, deep fakes, all that other good stuff. Uh, it seems like it's uh, seems like it's going to be a pretty big deal. It, well, uh, yeah, it's clearly going to be a big deal, especially as we go into another election cycle. Um, it, it's you know the thing about deep fakes as as terrifying as it is and. You know, and as real as it is, because I've I've seen some pretty convincing stuff. I, I whenever I'm asked this, I sometimes wonder, or I say, I don't know if it matters, because I think what I think what, and but by that I mean I think we've learned over the last two years that people don't need evidence to believe something that they're told, right? So people will sit down in front of their their favorite television show or their their favorite publication or their favorite social media site, whatever it is, and they're not going to go and verify whether it's real or not. So I don't think that it really matters. So you don't even necessarily need to create deepfakes as evidence. Um, so that's, so that's, you, think, you think people are just going to, people are just fine with accepting, if they hear garbage information, they're just fine with like hanging out of that garbage information no matter what, to a degree. I, 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 I think once I think once they hear it enough, they assume that it's been corroborated. It's almost like it, it's almost like social media creates this 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 synthetic blockchain of information, if you will. You know what I mean? Where where well, I heard that this politician said this, or this celebrity did this, or said this, and if it gets shared enough, um, has enough likes, or has enough shares, or you've you've seen that pattern enough times, to you it becomes true. That's interesting. That's actually a really interesting point because what you're basically saying is that we're that it's almost like a um, like a neuron that fires at a certain point. Uh, you you hear something happen and it's kind of like oh that's that's ridiculous that would never happen. Then you see it twice and you see it three times and you see it four times and then all of a sudden like the whole thing fires and it basically says oh yeah that makes perfect sense that that's exactly the situation that we're in right now. Yeah, it, it's it's sort of like you know I'm gonna get this I'm, I'm gonna get this attribution wrong. I think it was Douglas Rushkoff in the '90s um, who talked a lot about the fact that reality is a collective illusion, where you know if you know you see something crazy happening up in the sky, you look to people around you and be like, you guys see that? And as long as the other people say yes, then it exists. Um, and you know what we're seeing in in not just social media, but in, in the proliferation of news sources and that kind of stuff, is if it exists and enough, and enough other people see the same thing and you've heard it from other people, then you assume it exists. So I think that, you know, deep fakes is, you know, it's, it's a thing. It's interesting. Like, you can make someone do or say something that's, you know, that, that looks real, but it didn't actually happen. It's a simulacra. Um, but I, I don't think that, you know, I, I think pointing our fingers at that one thing as the source of our future problems with misinformation, I think, is, in my opinion, somewhat misguided. 
Hmm. Okay. I think yeah. thing is happening without it. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like uh, that sounds that sounds fair as well. I mean, basically, we can't we can't blame the can't blame everything on defects, but we should blame a lot on defects, I guess. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, it's yeah. I mean, it's symptomatic of of what's happening, and I think you know that's why you know I, I think more ex- and it, I have a and a caveat this by saying my understanding of of blockchain is nowhere near yours or probably most of the world, but um, I, this is why I think. You know, blockchain has a role in, in I guess, media and journalism because if you know if if it can prove that a deep fake or a copy or false information is in fact false, um, if it's in the blockchain, we would see where that information has changed. Yeah, I mean, it would be. I think that's that's one of my that's one of my pet uh, peccadillos that I've been thinking about recently. It's kind of be like a almost like a 3D a 3D verification where you have three cameras that verify a scene has happened or three pieces of information um that verify something has happened right so um like you basically if if one camera is incorrect then the uh, then the other two are going to basically just uh, fire off and say hey something's wrong here uh this has been this has been altered that kind of thing but that requires that requires an entirely new vision of verification need for verification i mean did we need did we need verified information from sony when we were thinking about uh when we were thinking about posting a i don't know a leaked phone or whatever do we need like a hundred percent but now we're basically in a situation where it's i don't know uh edma watson naked and how do we confirm that or deny that that's actually her that kind of thing yeah, I, and it, there's there's really no answer to that, and it becomes even more complex when you begin, and not to go too far off, you know, the deep end here, but that's what, when you start getting into, you know, synthetic data, which is very big now in artificial intelligence, and I think that is an incredibly interesting and useful technology when you're talking about, you know, machine learning and accelerating machine learning and artificial intelligence. I think it's really cool, but it also implies that there's um, you know creation bias in the synthetic environments that you're creating in order to teach machines whether or not something is real in the first place. Anyway, uh, what are you guys working on over at uh, over at Thinkdom to uh, to to fix the world? <laughs> well, I don't know if this fixes the world, but we just got out of earnings season, which is which is for me is exciting because I often find that stuff. Uh, not boring, but uh, not terribly exciting. But so we did a lot of stuff, you know, based on different companies, uh, you know, hiring trends and um, their workforce size and comparing it to their stock performance and looking at, you know, where retail, uh, you know, companies were opening and closing locations and people are freaking out about the so-called retail apocalypse and all that kind of stuff. So we just got out of that. So that was uh, that was interesting and fun. Um, I'm working on something I'm super excited about right now, which is um, about how banks are behaving now in terms of uh, mortgage lending compared to how they were behaving before 2008 um, and how they've sort of readjusted or not their their lending, you know, their, their lending practices and looking at them. Um, uh, I've got millions of basically what I'm looking at is millions of mortgages uh, over the last five years. Um, and I've got information on the the lendies, you know, race and gender and location, all that kind of stuff, and looking at how lending has or has not changed since the 2008 meltdown, and how 
these banks have responded or not responded to the new laws that have been handed to them. And that's, so that's, that's, that's fascinating. And I don't think, I don't think anybody in, uh, outside of a organization like yours would be able to start digging into that. Right. I, I don't think so. It's cause it's, um, it, there, there's a lot of number crunching that goes into it. You know, I'm lucky enough to have a room full of nerds who are capable of doing this stuff. Cause Lord knows I wouldn't be able to do it myself. Um, but you know they're they were able to you know throw it into our um, magic machine and come back to me with what looks like really simple data where you see the change in the rate spread over the last you know ten years. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think people are trying to do it, um, but I think that a lot of people are coming at it from a journalism angle, and not that that's a bad thing, but it means that they don't necessarily have the resources to um, to crunch the numbers. Hmm. Okay, so all journalists, all journalistic organizations should be bought by uh, analytics firms, and then that's the answer. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, in my <laughs> case, I don't. I certainly don't know. I just I know in my case, I was um, lucky enough to convince a couple of uh, data analytics nerds from Princeton into starting a media arm, um, and they were probably crazy for agreeing to do it, but somehow it's worked out. Uh, Josh, thanks for joining us on Techtopia. This has been a, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, man. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York, that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com.